Yes, Lord, to you be all the glory, great things you have done. You are our faithful, ever-present leader and deliverer, our mighty redeemer, and even when we can't see or understand what you are doing in our lives, Lord, we want to trust you. So would you do a mighty work in our hearts this morning to just help us to look to you and to trust in you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning we're in Exodus 13 and 14, the story of the Red Sea crossing, and we see our Redeemer mighty to save and to lead. Why is the truth of the Exodus important? Why study the route of the Exodus? Why does the timing matter? What does it matter where they cross the Red Sea? Is geography really important? Well, among other reasons, when you call the biblical account into question and you introduce doubt, there's a domino effect that happens. If you begin to think, well, God really didn't create the world, evolution happened, then there's a domino effect, right? The same thing here with Exodus. And Exodus is actually one of the first things I faced as a challenge in my freshman religion class in college, okay? and so. I'll tell you a story. We came to the story of the Red Sea in Exodus, and you know I had always believed that the Lord had done a mighty miracle there, and that he saved the people of Israel in just a miraculous way. But my professor said, well, now, now, now. You don't really understand. It wasn't the Red Sea. It was actually, it's tra the correct translation is Reed Sea, and it was just, it was a shallow body of water that was kind of swampy and had reeds around it. And the wind blew through it and then, you know, the Egyptians could pass through in just a little bit of mud. You know, and what do you say to that? I so wish I had heard the story about the little girl in Sunday school class who the way she responded was, wow, what a miracle, that's amazing. Praise the Lord, God drowned the whole Egyptian army in six inches of water. <laughs> but I did not have the presence of mind or the smartness to counteract it, but I still held on to that belief that even if there was no archaeological evidence of the crossing at a certain place, I was going to believe God's word. It happened the way he said. So my aim this morning is you will trust the Lord, our faithful ever-present leader, our strong deliverer, our mighty redeemer, even when we can't see or understand. And I read a passage in Hebrews this week that I think pertains to our passage. By faith, that is by trusting, Moses left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Seeing him who is invisible. Okay, how do you see someone who's invisible? Well, you see with your heart of faith, don't you? So we're going to start this morning with geography because that's where the text starts. So open up your Bibles or your journals to Exodus 13, verse 17, and that's where we're going to start this morning. All right? So when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near, for God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war. See, that, that theme is gonna come out over and over. When they see war and they return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. 
And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt. Okay, they're out of the land of Egypt. They've gone the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea, and they were equipped for battle. And then verse 20 says, and they moved on from Sukkoth, and they encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. Now you saw on your map that I created for you in your workbook that we don't know the exact location of these cities, Sukkoth and Etham. But we do know about the roads here. There are the Way of the Philistines is also called the Way of the Sea or the Via Maris because it follows along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea and it goes up toward the cities like Gaza. And I'm gonna pull out a map in a minute. Um, there's a couple of other uh, locations here that I wanted to call your attention to. In, in chapter 14, if you look at verse two, we see here that he refers to Pi Haharoth between Migdal and the sea and that's where they're gonna be camped. They camp there by the sea, by Pai Haharoth, and in front of Baal, Baal Baal Zaphon, okay? Not sure how you say that, but also in verse 11, it says, when they complain, they use the phrase, you've taken us away to die in the wilderness, and you've brought us where? Out of Egypt, okay? So those are some geographical clues. And on your handout, I've listed three options. These are options that Dr. Jason DeRoshi outlines in an article that he wrote, and I'll send you another link to that. There's three approaches. One is the Egyptian approach, number two is the Hebrew approach, and number three is the mediating approach. And I'm gonna get out the map here, and you have an extra copy of your map in your handout in case you didn't bring your map with you. Number one is the Egyptian approach, and this is right up here, and I'm gonna mark this in, how about if I mark it in blue? Okay, number one, you can see on the map. This is, this is Egypt, right up here, this triangle is called the Delta, remember that? So the people of Egypt are right here in kind of this, this area, right up in here. This is called the land of Goshen, or it's also called Avaris, is where an archeological dig is taking place there. And now, this is what I learned when I was in college, okay? So this, this means it wasn't a spectacular miracle because they'd just gone a little ways and they hit a marsh, you know, they hit a swamp. Now the Hebrew word for, that's translated Red Sea, is called Yam Suf. And what it means is, you know, it can be translated reed or red sea. And so the crossing, that's why these scholars, these you know, more, I would say more liberal scholars would say that they think that this happened close to Egypt in a reedy, swampy area. There's a couple of problems with this view, and I'm just gonna name a couple of them. One, remember Pharaoh gave the people of Israel permission to leave, didn't he? Do you remember last week after the plague on the firstborn? What did he say? Get out of here in a hurry, right? He urged them to go in haste and so the people left, all right? The other thing is that they, so they didn't need to fear the Egyptian army. The Egyptian army wasn't gonna come after them because they had permission to leave. Now, if the Israelites were on the west side of one of these smaller lakes in the Nile Delta, why would the people have complained? Why have you taken us out of Egypt? You can see this is still, you know, if they're over here, I'll put it like a dot, if they're up in this area, they wouldn't have said that they were out of Egypt because really here they're still in Egypt. And then the other thing is if this was a small swampy lake, we can't even imagine the amount of wind that it would take for it to cause the waters of a, of a lake or a wetland to heap up in, what did our passage say today? Walls, right, that they walked through. 
And, and again, how would the Egyptian army drown in a shallow lake? Okay, option two is called the Hebrew approach. And you can see this here. I'll, how about if I use green right here, number two. And this is, the, the Bible asserts that, you know, that the sea crossing was, if it was out of the land of Egypt, then it demands that it was in a location where this miracle could be of what Jason DeRoshi calls unparalleled proportions. He says the size of a miracle at Yom Suf must match the greatness of Yahweh's name that he sought to exalt. And so this is, this is, the, this is what um, is proposed in, in, in this uh, number two option. Let me just trace the route for you. So the Israelites set out here from this, I'll do it in red, they set out from this red dot up here and they go past an area called, they camp first at Sukkoth, and we don't know exactly where that is, but in this option it would be closer to Egypt. And so that, that's where these options have, their, they uh, overlap maybe. And so they depart by Egypt, so they go past fortifications or towers or things since they had permission to go. And so they, what they do is they come down and there's a couple of roads. Remember, God told them not to go on this road. This is the Via Maris right up here. God says, don't go on that road. And these are the cities of the Philistines up here. So that's not the way they were supposed to go. There's another route, an ancient Egyptian route right here. It's called the King's Highway. And it cuts right over here across the Sinai Peninsula. And it comes to the Gulf of Aqaba. And this is actually a trade route that was used um, a lot. So what happens is in this route, they think that Etham is somewhere closer to the Gulf of Aqaba, somewhere up in here in one of these areas where they were camped. And so in this option, what happens is that the people of Israel come around the northern tip of the Gulf of Aqaba, and then God tells them to turn around and go back. He says, turn back. And so they go back, and they're camped either somewhere here, or some theories say here, or some say they even go down here a little bit further, and one of the crossings could be here or here or here. Do you see that? And so the movie nights in January are going to explain some of these different options. So um, I'm not going to go into any more detail on that. It's just that um, I have a couple of verses here. Just this is, These are biblical reasons for us to believe that this was at a place where it was big, where there's great waters, okay? So next week in Exodus 15, we read, At the blast of Yahweh's nostrils, the waters piled up, the floods stood up in a heap, the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. That doesn't sound like a swamp. The waters themselves, you read, were a wall. That was this week, a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Now, next week, the floods covered them, this, the Egyptians. They went down into the depths like a stone. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. In Psalm 18 that we studied last year, the, the channels of the sea were seen and the foundations of the world were laid bare. Again, that doesn't sound like a swamp. And at the sight of Yahweh, the deep trembled. God's path was through great waters, through the mighty waters. So those are some biblical reasons why they think that, that the crossing was at a place like the Gulf of Aqaba, where the water is deep and big. Okay, number three is called the mediating approach, and I'm not going to talk about that much, but it's a traditional view based on the fact that they may have crossed at the, Gulf, the tip of the Gulf of Suez, and the reason that some scholars have thought that for so long is that because Greek geographers didn't even have the Gulf of Aqaba 
like on their maps. And so they thought it would be, they would cross at a big body of water, but they didn't know that Aqaba existed. They thought it was just Suez. Okay, all right, go on. All right, so number one, trusting the Lord, our faithful, ever-present leader, even when we can't see. All right, so when we get to verses 17 and 18 of chapter 13, we see this word that God uses here, or God did not lead them by way of the Philistines, but what he, God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. We see here that God is leading them. We also see this theme. I want you to listen for themes throughout this of fear and faith and seeing. Okay, what do the people see? And here's one thing, because God said, we don't want them to see war and be afraid and return to Egypt. So we've also seen repeatedly in our study of Exodus that what is Yahweh's aim in these miracles? What does he want them to see? He wants them to see who he is, that he is the Lord Almighty. He wants them to know who he is as he's revealed himself. All right, so next we see that God is faithful. They take Joseph's bones with them. Our God is invisible, and he's doing a thousand things, even at this moment, that we can't see or understand. He protects us from things that we don't even know about. You know, have you ever stopped to ponder the what-ifs in your life? We don't even know the multitude of things that God has saved us from. But God, who is sovereign and all-powerful and all-knowing, he sees what we can't see, and he leads us in his wisdom. And so the Lord knew that they should not go on the way of the Philistines. The people couldn't see this. They couldn't know. They couldn't understand. Why are we taking the long way around? But God knew that the road was dangerous, that there was a threat of war against them, and they weren't ready for it. He was protecting his people. They were very vulnerable. So the Israelites had just come out of bondage to slavery, but Pharaoh wants them back, and they themselves even say they want to go back. They're still thinking like slaves. It's the only life they've ever known. He also knew how tempted they would be to go back to Egypt. So he leads them in his wisdom and his ways. And it's the same with us, isn't it? We want to see this passage in light of what Jesus does for us. You know, what are we getting out of? Think of what God has delivered you from. He's delivered us from condemnation, from wrath. From the sentence of death, he's brought us from death to life. And we're justified. And what God has done for us is he has freed us, just like the people of Israel were freed. Remember, last week, they were told to leave Egypt, so they're on their way. They're freed from slavery. But now this week, we see God delivering them again through the sea, and God does that for us as well. And then finally, when we are glorified, we will be finally free from all sin. But in the meantime, God is sanctifying us, and he keeps delivering us. All right, next, verses 21 and 22, we see that God is ever-present with them. As long as they saw the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, they knew that God was with them, leading the way. This is a theophany. He was with them day and night. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 121, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Okay, God was with them 24-7. This is also a sign of his covenant with them. Remember the promise that God made to Abraham way back? He promised he would make them a great nation. He promised that he would deliver them after they were in bondage for 400 years. 
And he did this during a ceremony when he, you know, when he cut this covenant, when he cut the deal with Abraham. Do you remember what God did? Abraham was asleep, and what did God do when he went between the pieces of animals, the carcasses? Yeah, he walked through, and he walked through in the form of a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. Okay, this is a sign of God's presence. And then when the people later build a temple, they have two pillars that they erect in the temple that remind them of the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. Okay, it's God's ongoing presence with them. Now, we don't have a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire to guide us. Don't you wish sometimes that we did? Go this way, Pam. But what do we have that's even better? Yeah, we have the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 tells us that, that we're led by the Spirit. What else do we have? We have his word, right? Psalms tells us that his word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That's the way he leads us. All right, so we want to be trusting the Lord, our strong deliverer, even when we can't see or understand why. Note the perspective that we see in these verses. The first thing you notice in verse 1 is the Lord said this, who? He said it to Moses, right? We don't know if Moses relayed this information to the people of Israel, Israel or not, but, but Moses knew what God was about to do because God was very specific about everything that he was going to do. So the people obeyed his instructions where they were going to camp. God was up to something when he told them to turn back. The people had to trust. It's the same for us. God is doing a thousand things that we can't see. So God was sovereignly in control of every detail. He planned it all, he decreed it all. He's specific about everything here, the where, the how, the why, every detail. The Lord was setting a trap for Pharaoh and his people were the bait in this trap. So Pharaoh assumed that they were lost. God does whatever he pleases. He knows Pharaoh will pursue, God will get the glory, and there's nothing that Satan can do to thwart his plan. We see in um, Job 42, 2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And we also see that God will get the glory. You see this? He says, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And we see this again in verse 17 and 18 as well. Okay, we see here now in verses 5 through 9 that the mind of Pharaoh was indeed changed. And what did he do? His mind was changed and he pursued the people of Israel. The Egyptians pursued them. And now what happens? The people of Israel, when they saw Pharaoh and the armies pursuing them, the people of Israel, they lifted up their eyes. So they see and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. We've seen this imagery of birth throughout the narrative. Here's just another one. You know, when you have a newborn baby, what does it do when it has needs? It cries. So we hear, we have this newborn nation who is facing this threat. They're very vulnerable and they cry. And what do they see? They see probably the world's premier superpower army coming toward them. They're closing in on one side, they have the sea on the other side, and they are like cheese in this mousetrap. And it seemed impossible, but God wanted them to be trapped. So there's an army on one side, and the sea over here, they're desperate and hopeless, and that's 
when God is at his best. So the people of, of Israel, they say to Moses, is it because there's no grave in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians and die in the wilderness. How quickly they turn from seeing Yahweh's deliverance and power in the plagues, and now fear is creeping in. You know, we should have stayed there. But they, have, they don't realize what's happening here, that what, how God has directed them. This is God's sovereign decree for them to be in this place at this time. And isn't that sometimes the way we, we respond as well? We may doubt that God is really sovereign in our circumstances, that God's purposes are really good. Well, why did God deliver his people? He delivered his people to serve him. Now, on your handout, I put a number of verses, and that's your you can add that to your homework next week. Look up these verses, because we don't have time to go over all of them. But those are verses that you've come, if you didn't mark them before, go back and mark them now, where God says, let my people go that they may serve me. And here, they're rebelling by say, saying, we want to go back to Egypt and serve the Egyptian slave masters. Jesus said, you can't serve two masters. You'll either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. Here they actually say it would be better for them to go back to ruthless, bitter slavery. When God saves us by his grace and delivers us from slavery to sin and death, it's so that we might serve him as well. It's all by grace. The Lord is fighting for us, but our purpose is to serve and glorify him. It's also important here to note that God did not save his people because of their great faith. That comes out in this section, doesn't it? These are the same folks who were back in chapter two groaning because of their slavery, right? They wanted to be rescued. And, and do you remember the sweet verse that God heard? God remembered his covenant. He saw them and he knew. And so this is God's plan to rescue them. He saved them and he made them holy and his actions were not dependent on them or on Egypt. He loved them just because he loved them, okay? He was on their side. He was doing it for his sake and for his glory. And God saves us for his glory as well. It's not because of our strong faith. It's because he's saving us for his glory. It's not because we're worthy. We can trust God for our deliverance now and for our deliverance tomorrow because he saves us and keeps us for his glory. Now, God acted at the time when all hope seemed lost. That's when God likes to act. So then he gets the glory. We don't take any credit. And so the people here, are they have no illusions, or is it delusions of grandeur here, that they were doing anything. There was nothing they could do. Nothing was their own doing. Moses, they said this to Moses, and I got to thinking, how would I have responded, you know, as a, like a mom to my kids? You know, I, I don't know if I would have had the patience of Moses here. You know, I think I would have said, what did you say when we were back in Egypt? Is that what you said? Leave us alone so we can serve them? Seriously? I don't remember you saying that, you know? But Moses goes on here. He says he doesn't respond like that. He gives them a list. He says, he says, fear not, stand firm, and you will see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. 
For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Shut your mouth. Watch and see what God is going to do here. And why? Why should they do this? What's the reason? For the Egyptians whom you see today, you're never going to see again. The Lord is going to be fighting for you. That's how, why you can just stand here and watch. And I was just delighted on Sunday when we had our worship service with the orchestra and everything. It was so beautiful, and we sang, I will not be shaken. And I was thinking of the people of Israel. He is my rock, my shield, my fortress. He's my salvation and my strength. The cords of death, they were surrounding me. But he heard my cry for help. He's my refuge, my, my high tower, my deliverer, so strong. The snares of death, they were confronting me. But he heard my cry for help. So I'll stand in trust. I'll stand in faith. I will not be shaken, right? And why? Because our God will not be moved. Our God will never change. Our God will reign forevermore. And there's, there's nothing that can separate us from God's love. We know that from Romans 8, don't we? If you ever doubt God's love for you or, or his good purposes for your life, remember we find these assurances in his word. There's nothing that can happen to us that's outside of his good and perfect plan. God delivered you, not by death of your firstborn, but by the death of his own firstborn. So when you are focusing on your life, don't focus on your circumstances, your pain or your fears, but look to Jesus, look to the cross. Whatever you're going through, even when you don't have other answers, you'll know the answer to this question. Will God deliver me? Yes, he will. You can look backwards to past grace so that that will bolster your faith for whatever happens to you in the future. Does this mean that we just stand around silently and we do nothing all the time? Well, actually, here, that's what God told them to do, just to stand and to be quiet. So there are times when we need to stand and be quiet. But let's read on. What does God tell them to do? The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? And just parentheses here, um, commentaries say that this was the Lord actually speaking to the people through Moses because we don't think that Moses was the one that was complaining to the Lord here, even though that's what he did a couple chapters ago. Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to what? To go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. Later in Exodus, we see that they're commanded to fight with Yahweh on their side. How about us? Aren't we commanded in Ephesians 6 to put on the whole armor of God? Okay, do we have commands to resist the devil? Are there sometimes commands that we flee? Okay, so it, we're not always standing still, but, but there are times when God will tell us to, to run and to fight. This is a picture of our continued battle against sin. He delivers us, he saves us, he justifies us, and we're being progressively sanctified. But we keep fighting that battle against sin until we're glorified. It's hard, but Exodus 14 applies to us here. All right, we're gonna go on here. Trusting the Lord who gets the glory, verses 17 through 31. He says here in verses uh, 17 and 18, this is where we see him repeat, I will get the glory. We saw this theme of glory back in verse four. 
God makes himself known in the pillar, both the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. And he does that here in the next couple of verses. He says, then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from them before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and there was darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. What is going on here? The angel of God and the pillar are two different ways of describing the same theophany here. This is actually God's visible presence among them to protect them as they pass over the sea, and the Egyptians are held at bay. Such is God's mighty power in the pillar and uh, pillar of cloud and fire. And I remember an old song that Chris Tomlin wrote years ago that talked about, he said, I know who goes before me. I know who stands behind. It's the God of angel armies who is always by my side. The one who reigns forever, he's a friend of mine. The God of angel armies is always by my side. That's, who, that's what God did for the people. Okay, he delivered them through the Red Sea for that. Now, verses 21 and 22. This is where Moses actually, you know, stretched out, oops, stretches out his hands. I skipped ahead. Okay, in verses 21 and 22, you can look down in your, in your Bibles. This is where they actually cross over from death to life. God was standing there protecting them the whole time, and they cross over by faith, Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 11. Now, we do the same thing. We cross from death to life, don't we? That's what salvation is about, going from death to to life. Romans 4 tells us, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted to him as righteousness. So once we too were in the kingdom of darkness, but now we are in the kingdom of light, all because of grace. Isaiah 51.10 says, Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So here in verses 23 through 25 is where the Egyptians actually pursue them. They go in. I've listened to a couple of different sermons on this, and I actually, well, this is an aside, I probably should just skip it because we're running late, but did you notice how many times it says dry ground? Dry ground, dry ground, dry ground. Don't believe it when someone says they went through the mud, okay? Dry ground here, okay. Now, verses 26 through 28, I promise you we're wrapping up. Did you notice right here, I just wanted, one thing I wanted to point out to you, in this verse, the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. Where have we seen that in the plagues about the morning? Do you remember Moses went in and confronted Pharaoh a couple times in the morning? And do you remember the, the chief Egyptian god, the sun god, Ra? Do you remember? The, their, their, their thinking was that Ra, during the night, was battling the forces of darkness underground. And in the morning, after he had defeated the forces of darkness, he would rise, and that would be the sun in the sky. So God is doing an ironic thing here. When the sun comes up, and that's when Pharaoh and all his armies are completely decimated here in the sea. He says, this will be a good time for me to do this, when, when the sun comes up and you can see what I'm doing. 
So what we see in this section is that God is making a distinction between the Israelites and the Egyptians, and we saw this in the plagues as well. And when Jesus returns, it will be the same thing. Not one who belongs to Christ will be lost, but not one apart from Christ will be saved. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left, and the Lord saved Israel this day. I put this quote on your handout, but I love this quote. Having drowned a potential army in the Nile, Pharaoh now witnesses the watery demise of his own forces, while Israel, like the child Moses, passes to safety. It's beautiful. God is delivering people. Now, I just have one more thing I want to share with you. You have a chart on your, on your handout. I just want to highlight the contrast that we see here. Before the people cross the Red Sea, they don't see the enemy, they don't, or they see the enemy, they don't see the Lord, they don't see what God is about to do. So they feared greatly. And do they believe? They don't believe. They complained, they sinned, they rebelled at the sea. But after they cross the sea, what do they see? They see the parting, they see the dead enemy, they see the Lord's power. And what did they do? They feared the Lord, and they believed the Lord, and they believed Moses. Now they could see that they were safe. These Egyptians were washed up on the seashore. Um, it's just, I think it's a beautiful contrast here. It's an immense change that God wrought in their hearts, that they were fearing the Lord now, and they trust him. Psalm 106, 7, that you read in your lesson, verses 7 through 12, God says, yet, or the psalmist said, yet he saved them for his namesake that he might make known his mighty power. He wants that power to be known. He rebuked the Red Sea and it became dry and he led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy and the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. They believed the Lord. They believed his words and they sang his praise. And that brings us to next week. Next week is all about praising our Redeemer who is mighty to save. And it's a beautiful song of Moses. It's a beautiful song of praise. Much later, when the people are in grave danger again, King Jehoshaphat prayed. And I'd like to close with his prayer. O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. So Lord, give us hearts that trust you, even when we can't see or understand our circumstances. You are our redeemer, mighty to save. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.